Hello and welcome to Altitude Crime. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and we are diving into another Colorado true crime case. Before we get into it, I do want to remind you, I talked about this last week, but Altitude Crime has a new website. You can visit altitudecrime.com. And if you visit the shop tab, that will take you to the Etsy platform where there's currently a 20% off sale until December 21st. So make sure to check that out. The holidays are coming up. Get something for the crime lover in your life. So I didn't realize when I picked to cover this case this week that I was keeping in theme. This is another murder that took place in the month of November. And this was actually a recommendation from my mom who actually knew the victim's son. So she actually knew the victim in this crime. In addition, my grandmother was always a cautious woman, but this case really, really terrified her when it happened. So it definitely hits home. And where and how the victim's body was found makes this story all the more gruesome. Now, if you aren't local to Colorado Springs, you might not know the long lore behind Gold Camp Road. This road included three tunnels blasted out of the mountain face entering into Colorado Springs and was originally built to run the short line, which was the train that brought mined ore from Cripple Creek to Colorado Springs. In the 1920s, the road changed to a toll road and then a public road. But Gold Camp has been closed down to cars for a long time due to the unexplainable collapse of the third tunnel. And it basically serves as a trail for hikers and bikers now. But that doesn't mean that the air isn't heavy here. As with most mining endeavors, a rabble of men lost their lives in the explosions used to build the tunnels, cave-ins, and other Wild West calamities that you can think of. But if you ask the locals, there's another reason that this area is so haunted and spooky. Colorado Springs lore is that the tunnel collapsed on a school bus full of children. I have many friends and myself who grew up driving into the first tunnel and putting flour on your car before getting in and turning your lights off. Rumor had it, if you sat there for a few minutes in the dark, when you turned the lights back on, you would find handprints of the ill-fated children on your car. Add that in with the tales of practicing witches and sightings of men in black cloaks, and it makes Gold Camp Road a formidable paranormal zone. Now, if that wasn't enough, a more modern true story would add to the terror of Gold Camp Road. On November 22, 2011, at 2.10 in the morning, firefighters responded to word of a fire on Gold Camp Road, just south of Tunnel 1, near the lower Captain Jack's trailhead. As they started to control the blaze, the firefighters would make a gruesome discovery, first noticing a human foot and finding a burning body in the center of the blaze on Gold Camp Road. Once firefighters were able to put the fire out, it was not immediately clear if the victim that they had found was a man or woman due to the extent of the burning. The body had also been wrapped in bedding. Upon further inspection, the body would come to be identified by an engraved plate on the dentures that the person was wearing. Had the dentures not had this nameplate, identification would have taken much longer. It was right around the Thanksgiving holiday and getting x-rays would have been difficult with the doctors and dentists in town. 
If you are wondering, the Colorado Springs Coroner's Office now has its own x-ray machine so that investigators are not at the mercy of scheduling outside x-rays when something like this happens. The engraved nameplate on the dentures led to Catherine Kit Grazioli. This nameplate on the dentures made them able to identify her within hours of finding her burned body. Catherine, or Kit as was her nickname, and I will refer to her as for the rest of the episode, was 87 years old at the time of her death. She lived in a gated community at 1130 Samuel Point. This is near Highway 15 and Cheyenne Meadows Road on the south end of town near Fort Carson. Gold Camp Road, where her body was dumped and burned, was over five miles away from her townhome on the south side of town. Kit had moved to Colorado in 1989. She had lived in Florida prior to the move. She had moved with her husband when his military service brought him to Colorado Springs. Kit herself had served in the Navy and in World War II. She spent a majority of her life in Colorado Springs as a deacon at Faith Presbyterian Church and also owned and managed All-American Sports Center here in town. The couple had three sons. Albert Jr., who went by Buddy, Charles, and Patrick. Being that her husband was still active in the military as the boys were growing up, she raised the three primarily by herself. She would also have five grandchildren by the time that she passed away. Kit had also survived breast cancer twice, and she was looking forward to moving on and did not rest with her old age. She embraced technology, and she was really looking forward to doing more traveling. In order to fund her daily expenses and her traveling costs, she worked for CAN, which was a direct marketer for telecommunication services. Once Kit was identified, the police set to finding what happened to her. By 12.30 in the afternoon, police started searching her home. When they arrived, they found that multiple things were missing, including her white Mitsubishi, her computer, and other electronics from the home. They noticed that a screen to a particular window was missing, and in looking around the neighbor's houses, found that another screen from another neighbor's house had been taken as well. According to which source you look at, the window in which the screen was missing at Kit's home had either been unlocked during the night or open. Police continued to gather evidence, and the fire department came at about 7.30 that night to board up some windows and protect the crime scene. It wouldn't take long for investigators to have a suspect in Kit's murder. They would find fingerprints on the townhome's west window that would lead them to a man named Marcus Allen Smith. He was 21 at the time of the murder. Smith was already on a five-year probation for a second-degree burglary. In this burglary, he had stole a computer and DVDs, and it was about two years prior to Kit's death. In a strange turn of events, after taking these items, he eventually went back to the home with $50 and a note with an apology to the owner of the home. Because he went with no mask or anything, the victim in the burglary was able to identify him and called the cops, and he was found right after. In this case, Smith had taken a plea deal in which two other charges were dropped against him. These were theft of items between $1,000 to $20,000, as well as the charge of selling of stolen property to a pawn shop. This crime took place in the same area that Kit lived in, and Smith had other offenses. He was arrested 14 times between 2003 and 2011 for charges including burglary, robbery, motor theft, and theft, and all of his offenses took place in the same area. 
This reinforced him as a suspect for investigators. Smith was supposed to be arraigned on December 12th, which would have been just a couple weeks later for a misdemeanor assault charge. That particular incident took place on October 31st and was just 11 days after his probation for the burglary had started. Smith was arrested for Kit's murder on Friday, November 25th, 2011. At the time, automatic license plate readers were pretty new for the Colorado Springs Police Department fleet, and they took a big part in tracking down Smith so quickly. The officer that located Kit's Mitsubishi, which Smith had been driving, found the car within an hour of knowing what to look for. The Mitsubishi had been parked at another complex neighboring Kit's, and when they looked into the car, the car door also had Smith's fingerprints on it. SWAT and other authorities found Smith just a half mile from Kit's house when he was arrested. And his arrest painted him as a great suspect as well. He had Kit's credit cards in his pocket. And the computer items and electronics equipment that was missing from Kit's house ended up being found in Smith's parents' house, which was really close to her townhome. Prosecutors would later assume that Smith had stolen Kit's white Mitsubishi Gallant in order to put her in the trunk and move her to the Penrose Multi-Use Trail parking lot, which was near where he dumped her body. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pretty open and shut case here, right? His fingerprints are at the scene. He's got her possessions on him or in a residence. Seems pretty obvious. But unfortunately, the court case for this would run over four and a half years before Kit's family would get any kind of closure. So let's go over what happened in getting Smith to an actual trial. So Marcus Smith was charged in court on December 5th, 2011. So just within a few days of finding Kit's body, figuring out, finding Smith, doing the investigation. So pretty quick there. But things got weird right away. In Lance Benzel's reporting for the Gazette, attorney Jennifer Stock reinforced this idea that Smith had started to put out about black versus brown. And she says, quote, everything discussed by prosecutors is black. Black isn't true. Black is the small picture and doesn't see the big picture. Brown is truth. Brown is the big picture, unquote. Needless to say, prosecutors had no reply to this. Smith's reactions to things and his overall behavior was pretty strange right off. So he went under his first mental health evaluation in April 2012. He was seen as competent to stand trial and his trial would have been in August 2012. When Smith entered for his arraignment, he had words written all over his prison jumpsuit. Again, According to Lance Benzel's reporting for the Gazette, these included, quote, in reality realm, unquote, quote, slave ship suit, unquote, quote, brown, unquote, which was something that came up a lot of times, and, quote, Kunta Quinte, unquote. For those of you who aren't familiar, Kunta Quinte is a reference to Roots, which was a 1977 television miniseries, and the character Kunta Quinte was a slave in the show. His plea in this court hearing was not guilty. But Judge Barbara Hughes withdrew the plea, and that met with taunts and insults from Smith. Smith's mother actually ended up leaving the courtroom during this exchange, and Smith had to be physically removed from the courtroom due to the outburst. So arraignment was rescheduled for September. But come September, 
Smith was ordered to do another mental health review. This would be the second one. And this was spurred by his ejection from the courtroom in the August 2012 plea hearing. In this particular health review, the defense had a Denver psychiatrist that said he was mentally ill. And in November 2012, there was another hearing to discuss this most recent competency review. In the middle of this hearing, and nobody's quite sure what caused it, Smith began to scream at both his defense and the judge. This interrupted the hearing and caused a new one to be scheduled for February 2013. Once they got to February, Dr. B. Thomas Gray from the Pueblo, Colorado Mental Health Institute basically said he couldn't rule out some type of psychosis for Smith, but that it was really obvious that his symptoms seemed more outlandish and intense when people were watching. Judge Hughes had decided that she would make a decision a few days later on February 15th and did rule him competent to stand trial. So the process started again, and the next thing was for Smith to go into a hearing to enter his plea, and this was in March 2013. Judge Hughes entered a not guilty plea, and Smith threw insults, kicked a chair, and ranted, and was removed from court again. In April 2013, Smith got new attorneys. His original attorney was privately appointed, and at this time, he got public defenders. The trial was set to start in August 2013, but this change would push it out again to allow his new defenders time to gather their case. But there would be another change in the public defenders. There was a change in legal team again due to some type of conflict of interest for defense attorney Ed Ferry. As they move closer to another trial... On October 2013, Smith was ordered to undergo another mental evaluation. This one also came back as competent. And Smith's outbursts were not limited to just the courtroom. He was quite the handful in jail, too. In September 2014, he attacked a sheriff's deputy named Harry Lamont. Smith had been being kept in a high-security cell, and when Lamont came to get him out for his one hour that he was allowed to have outside of his cell... Smith hit him in the face and head and then attempted to pull him into his cell with him. Smith had also managed to get his radio away so that Deputy Lamont could not call for help. The entire beating was caught on video and only stopped when another deputy came in. Deputy Lamont was pretty beat up, but luckily came out relatively unscathed from the situation. Smith would eventually get another charge for this, which was attempted first-degree murder, and this was added to his list of charges on December 2014. At some point before this, he had also had charges for second-degree assault on a peace officer while in jail and second-degree assault involving bodily fluids. I was not aware that this was a type of assault charge, and I wish I still did not. By February 2015, Smith was threatening to kill his public defender and was refusing to speak to him in order to make any proceedings go forward. His defense wanted him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but Smith refused on multiple occasions to let them enter the plea. And this was even more complicated considering he was refusing to speak with them. They couldn't put in any kind of plea. In a hearing to discuss the possible plea and what documents would need to be provided, Smith again got belligerent. The defense asked that he be medicated, even if it had to be by force, during the trial, which was now set for April 6, 2015. It would be now the third trial date set so far in this ongoing courtroom drama. These threats against his lawyers led to another and final competency hearing to be ordered in March 2015, and it vacated the planned April 6 trial date. 
When it came time for the hearing for this review in September 2015, only one of the psychiatrists could be present and it pushed the hearing again, which also meant pushing the trial. In this review, the psychiatrist that was present for the hearing said that Smith did have some type of mental illness that kept him from understanding the legal process. This hindered his defense as he couldn't comprehend what they needed him to do and they just weren't able to communicate what was going on and move forward. The same psychiatrist also said that he was a schizophrenic. Now, if you'll remember from some of our other cases, being a schizophrenic isn't inherently dangerous. At the lowest level, it's problems attaching with people and some schizophrenics move through life never really noticing an issue. On the bigger end of that, it can cause hallucinations and some of the dangerous things that we see that can be tied to this disorder. The psychiatrist also said that Smith had antisocial personality disorder. This causes a lack of both empathy and remorse in people. And oftentimes people with these issues tend to have had a lot of fights or other issues within the school system. This forces them into a life of crime or in early adulthood, which was the case in Smith's criminal history. Smith's mother, Erlene, had explained that Smith was a good student through grade school, but after that he was often expelled or suspended from school for various reasons. After that, he eventually got into his life of crime, which we know the background of. As no surprise to anyone, Smith was kicked out of this hearing for talking and mumbling loudly during the prosecution's cross-examination of the doctor. According to Matt Steiner's reporting for the Gazette, Smith's mother, Arlene, had said after this hearing that, quote, I think we're finally moving forward after four years. Hopefully in the end, he'll get some treatment, unquote. The list of bizarre things that happened while Smith was in custody and in the courtroom goes on and on, but here's some of the highlights over those four years. At one point, he sent letters to Judge Hughes while he awaited for trial. He sent more than 12 letters between 2012 and 2014. And one of his biggest points was one I've brought up already about the authorities in court calling him black when he was in fact brown and reinforced by the statement I mentioned earlier by the defense. He also explained in these letters that his jailing was a type of torture. His biggest ask in these letters was that he wanted the court to release him, say he was innocent, and they should give him $500 million. Don't we all wish we could have $500 million? At one point, Smith called a paralegal in the office of his lawyer to try to get them to kill his defense lawyer. Judge Hughes, while she did hold her composure through a lot of this, Smith was often making comments directly to her. In addition to threats and insults and sexual remarks, according to Lance Benzel and Jacob Rogers reporting for the Gazette, he was very fond of referring to her as quote-unquote Barbie. Smith often mentioned how his diet was only raw buffalo meat and coconut milk, and at times he was found to either eat his own fecal matter or rub it in his hair. Smith's family believed over the years that the solitary confinement that he was forced into due to his outbursts as well as the jail staffs supposedly taking him off his medication, had made the situation and his mental state worse. By this point in the proceedings, Smith had gone through 10 defense attorneys. Most homicide cases, particularly in Colorado Springs, are usually closed within a year or two of an arrest. But by November 2015, which was four years after the murder, Smith had had 58 different hearings but no trial. Kit's family was upset really early on. Her son, Buddy, 
had written a letter in June 2013 to DA Dan May about the speed at which the trial was moving. Four years might not seem that long in the scheme of things, but in comparison, James Holmes, the Aurora theater shooter who had killed 12 people and injured 58 others, that incident happened just a few months after Kit's murder, and by November 2015, when Smith had still not gone to trial, Holmes had already entered a plea and had a firm trial date for that many casualties and charges. The turnaround to getting Smith to trial would start in December 2015. This is when the fourth mental competency review he'd gone through would be decided on if he was competent or not. In order to make her decision, Judge Hughes heard from both psychiatrists as well as asked for jail mental health records to assist her in her decision. She had noticed that there was not a lot of records as far as what had been going on at the jail. So the first psychiatrist was the one that we'd already heard from that had said that Smith was a schizophrenic as well as having antisocial personality disorder. The second psychiatrist, however, did not agree with this. They thought that Smith was competent and would be able to work with his defense during trial. This doctor said that Smith's claims were not consistent and he could be cooperative depending on the person. And they really felt that he was faking a majority of his mental illness. At this point, Smith had spent more than three years in solitary confinement at the El Paso County Jail. And ironically enough, was actually compliant at this hearing. After hearing all the information, Judge Hughes decided she needed more time to review all of the information. And a new and final hearing on Smith's competency was set for January 2016. Prior to Judge Hughes making this last decision, three of the four competency reviews that Smith had gone through had found him to be competent and ready to stand trial. When the hearing came on January 16th, he was ruled fit to go to trial, and a trial date was set for June 2016. This ruling did open another can of worms for this trial, though. There was a question of if Smith would fire his current attorneys and try to represent himself since he was ruled competent. In Lance Benzel's reporting for the Gazette, Smith explained that he was going to, quote, pimp up the court, unquote, by representing himself. Now, here's a little background on this. In 2008, there was a decision in the Supreme Court that basically drew a line between somebody being sane enough to understand the legal process and be fit to go to trial and being sane enough to serve as their own counsel. Being said that you're fit to go to trial does not mean that you can do both. It's a very clear line between those two now. And while it was going to be cleared up in an upcoming hearing of whether Smith could represent himself or not, any decision made in this case would actually affect another high-profile Colorado case. That was the case of Robert L. Deere Jr., who had shot up a Planned Parenthood and killed three people and wounded nine others. Deere was also awaiting a competency hearing. The decision in Smith's case of him being competent to stand trial versus competent enough to be his own lawyer would end up being applied to the Deer case most likely. But luckily, at the end of January, it was decided that Smith was competent to stand trial but unable to represent himself during the trial, and most likely probably led the trial to being much shorter and much more coherent. As was no surprise, Smith was removed from this hearing for getting belligerent and inappropriate. 
Smith's case finally began on Monday, June 6, 2016, about four and a half years after Kit's murder. The jury was filled with nine women, five men, and two alternates. Already on the first day of the trial, death threats, rants, and obscenities got Smith kicked out. For months, Smith had refused to have his defense put in a plea of insanity. And then as soon as the trial started, he wanted to change. He wanted to use that plea. But in a good call, Judge Hughes said that he could not change the plea now that the trial had started. And she refused a mistrial request from the defense. Smith's defense was basically that he was so stark raving mad that he could have not had criminal intent and the killing was just an act of a crazy man. The prosecution, on the other hand, showed that he had tried to cover up the crime in multiple ways, which meant he knew exactly what he was doing. In going over autopsy reports, it would be shown that Kit's strangulation was so intense that it broke bones in her neck. And we may have not known that she was strangled had it not been for the damage to these bones. Her cervical spine, which are the top few vertebrae on the spine near the head, all had fractures. And her hyoid bone, which sits just under the jaw on top of the larynx and is integral in proving strangulation in most cases, also had fractures. In what would be one slice of good news in this case was it was found that Kit was already deceased when her body was set on fire. This was based on that she had no outstanding carbon monoxide levels and no soot or other residue in her lungs. So while this murder was so brutal, at least she did not have to endure that while she was alive. And it wasn't just the evidence that would point to Smith as being Kit's murderer. Smith's own words would dig his grave for him. During a threat to staff at the jail in 2014, he had admitted that he killed Kit. This confession was provided at trial from a mental health worker and an El Paso County Sheriff's deputy. And I'm going to say this quote here, and it's very hard to say, but it really gives you a shot as to just like how brutal Smith acted through the trial about what he had done. In Lance Benzel's reporting for the Gazette, in this particular conversation, Smith had told the deputy that, quote, he was coming for him just as he had come for grandma, unquote. Smith would go on to give a full testimony of the crime in court. At the beginning of the trial, it was unclear if he would testify, but he took the stand on June 23, 2016, and he gave quite the introduction to the jurors. According to the Gazette, he said, quote, I have many names, brown, hot brown chocolate. I graduate and I gradually change my name. I could be about 55 or something. I could be 90. I could be 500, unquote. He revealed that he had considered two other homes before deciding on kits. He had seen her in her room in her nightgown and assumed that the elderly woman would be easy to subdue but prior to breaking into her place, stopped and went to buy gloves first. For many, this was a sign of both deliberation to commit the crime as well as proving his competence. He molested Kit and then choked her to death. According to the Gazette, he said, quote, She's saying, don't you believe in God, he said, and I tell her I'm God as I take off her clothes, unquote. His testimony was ended when his mother passed out due to the horrible nature of the recounting of the crime, as you can see just from that quote there. Smith's dad, Alan Smith, ended up carrying his mom out of the courtroom after she fainted. 
Anne Smith's confession gave Kit's family the terrible realization that she had suffered greatly prior to her death and that it was not fast nor a painless process. Smith's mental state still continued to be a big topic of the trial for the defense. His mother, Erlene, said that his mental illness really began in 2009, and they had trouble getting him placed at an inpatient treatment spot in Colorado Springs. Smith had visited Pueblo about two months prior to the murder to get a diagnosis at the Colorado State Mental Health Institute. This visit proved that he had schizophrenia, and he was released after the diagnosis. The defense claimed that the institute did not do their due diligence and did not do enough for their patient. They had no follow-up care recommended or scheduled for him, and he left the facility with only a three-day supply of the medication he needed to control the condition. This medication would calm his hallucinations. Erlene said that the visit to the institute had resulted in a good conversation with their son, and they talked about normal things like sports and family. Smith's attorney at the time had wanted him to go back to the Pueblo Hospital, and this would have been for a stint of 90 days. But instead, Smith seemed to improve and he was released from jail on October 20th. A month later is when he would kill Catherine Grazioli. In addition to all of this evidence, the jury also heard a 2011 911 call on Halloween night. It was Smith's mother, Erlene, that had called after Smith punched his sister in the face. His sister was pregnant. In addition to the assault, he also threatened to blow up everyone's vehicles and the house. The defense also questioned how Smith was treated and diagnosed at the state mental hospital and if it had anything to do with racial bias against Smith. But this testimony came after Smith's recounting of the murder and may have fell on deaf ears. The prosecution also went to point out that someone who is a schizophrenic can still create a plan. Their key example was in 1981 when John Hinckley Jr., who was a schizophrenic, drove through multiple states in order to try to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. In a profound move, the prosecution at one point set an alarm for two minutes and stayed silent. That's about how long it would have taken for Smith to strangle Kit. When the alarm went off, Smith topped the moment with a laugh. It was now in the jury's hands, which was now a four-man and eight-woman jury. They had to choose between first-degree murder, which would be life in prison without parole, or second-degree, which had a maximum of 48 years in jail. The trial took about 13 days, and the jury deliberated for about five hours over the course of two days. They found Marcus Smith guilty, and he was convicted on June 28, 2016. He was convicted of first-degree murder and got life in prison without the possibility of parole. Smith was 25 at the time of his conviction. Even the victim's statement in this case would be a scene. Kit's son, Buddy, made the statement, which was interrupted by Smith's yelling and an attempt to spit on him. But this did not deter Buddy from completing his statement, which did not only include comments to Smith, but also to Judge Barbara Hughes for how she handled the case. Hughes had allowed Smith to undergo four different competency evaluations, which created a long wait for justice in the case. Judge Hughes made no comment to Buddy's claims for her mishandling of the trial. She took the hits and moved on with the proceedings. This statement by Buddy would be the first public one by the family in regards to their contempt for the court proceedings. They had stayed mum with the public and media until the trial had ran its course. Throughout the trial, prosecutors and the victim's family believed that Smith was faking his mental illness symptoms to avoid trial. As the jury saw it, this was hard for them to make a decision on if it was real or not. 
One juror thought that maybe he had some illness, but was faking other symptoms to seem over the top. As far as Smith's assault on the sheriff's deputy that got him the first-degree murder charge, he had another court date set on July 26 of that same year for the additional charges. And of course, he pled not guilty to them. He was acquitted of the first-degree murder charge, but was found guilty of first-degree assault and some other smaller charges. In total, it would have added 10 to 32 years for the assault and up to 40 years for everything else. He ended up getting another 19 years tacked on to his life imprisonment. Okay, guys, so let's be honest. This one was brutal. Let's break down some thoughts. Musing number one. It is always so hard to go over these cases where not only is the person killed, but that the body is handled in such a grotesque way. I have said this in our last episode. It's always very hard for me when somebody is then doubly desecrated when their body set on fire or mutilated or something like that. Definitely makes this not easy to cover. Musing number two. You have to wonder, without Kit's name engraving on her dentures, if there was a possibility that she would never be identified. The authorities had said that her body was burned beyond recognition, and initially they weren't even sure if the body was male or female. So thank goodness for that, because it could have been the difference between identifying her and not identifying her. Musing number three. This had to have been really scary for the people in the townhome community where Kit lived, too. You think you're being safer by getting in a gated community, but then something totally random like this can still always happen. Musing number four, there's a good lesson to be learned here. So as we know, Smith had checked out other neighbors' places before landing on Kit. And one of these was a woman whose screen that he did take out of the window and then the window was locked. This serves as a cautionary tale. Do what you can to protect yourself. Lock your stuff, close your windows, do those small things that could be the difference between somebody getting into you and somebody not. Musing number five. I kind of wonder, and I could be wrong here and he could have gotten one at some point, but I wonder if a habitual sentence was ever thought of for Smith due to how many burglaries and thefts he had. You may remember, especially from our Scott Kimball case, part of why he was being able to be put away for so long was because of the habitual sentencing laws in Colorado. That basically allows prosecutors to go for longer sentences based on that the person does the same kind of crime over and over again. And I wonder if this was ever applied to any of Smith's prior crimes. Musing number six. So while I understand procedurally why Smith went through so many competency reviews, it basically was that he'd be ruled competent and then he'd essentially do something crazy and that would put that in question. So procedurally, I understand going through four of them, but it does seem excessive and it does seem like it probably wasted a lot of time. But I can see how things like this are delicate in that a judge might not want to put somebody as competent to trial that's really not. So it's definitely not a great situation. Okay, guys, well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to this story. It certainly was not an easy one to cover. It's, like I said, pretty brutal. But please don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. I will have some midweek content continuing to come out. The Gannon Stock case is going to be moving along here soon. And 
As you might have seen, I put out an update on the Dylan Redwine case. Mark Redwine has put in for an appeal, so I will be continuing midweek content as we get those updates. If you're not following or subscribed to the podcast, you won't get alerts on these and you won't see them till later on. So I definitely recommend doing that and it helps other people find Altitude Crime. If you want to connect with me or you want to talk about cases, please reach out to me on social media. You can get me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And as always, source materials are on the website at altitudecrime.com. Along with that big sale that's happening until December 21st, which is 20% off all of Altitude Crime merchandise. And you might see it on that shop page that there's only three pictures listed, but there's a lot of new merchandise and that 20% does apply to all of it. Also on the new website, there is a suggest a case link. That's going to ask for just a case that you're interested in and also collect some of your information so you can hear what's going on with altitude crime. So please keep those coming. Thanks again so much for spending part of your week with me and I will talk to you next week on altitude crime. Episode 35, The Murder of Catherine Kit Grazioli, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.